Heidi White. And I'm Sean Johnson. And this is Close Reads, a podcast for the incurable reader on which we are discussing listeners' questions uh, for the book we just finished, The Optimist Daughter by Eudora Welty. Uh, Sean, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Heidi. How are you? I am doing great. David is not here again. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He does have a strong work ethic. He does care very much about this podcast. Uh, but he is currently on vacation with his wife. He's in England. He's in the Cotswolds today. He's the been Cotswolds. in London and Oxford. And he is texting us actually quite often about uh, books that won the Pulitzer Prize, sending us pictures. <laughs> He's doing well and thriving and flourishing, but he is on vacation. And I actually can't remember the last time David took a vacation. Can you? I think I think this is a good thing. Yeah. It's so good. We're so proud of him. Yeah. Uh, I just, so we're glad he's not here because that means that he's able to relax and recover. And as you all know, he's been sick quite often yeah. uh, and he has a couple things going on in his life. And so we're happy to give him this particular podcast off. Not, not just because he's sick, right. but because he's having fun, desire, not just duty. Yeah, and it was a miracle. I mean, the stars aligned and he was healthy at just the right time uh, to make That's this right. vacation. And he was yeah, a little so we, bit worried about we, that. We don't begrudge him. No, we're really happy. But, and yeah. we are excited to tackle these uh, listener questions. Although I am, the reason that I am sad that David is not here, other than just like, I like David and talking about books with David, right. uh, is because he really likes this book. Yeah. And he's had a couple in a row that he's like had to try to really push past some things. <laughs> and so it's so I'm just like really sad he's missing out on this Q&A. And there are a yeah. lot of really good questions. Um, but before we get started on that, Sean, do you have anything to report about your life? Today, uh, not the day that this airs, but the day that we're recording this is my wife's birthday. Oh, happy birthday to Heather. You guys happy need a vacation. Heather. Yeah, right. We're going to vacation yes. to the uh, the North Carolina mountains in June. That's right. Yes. But Heather's not. Is Heather going to be there? Heather's coming. No way. Yeah. This is the first time hearing about this. Oh, this is so exciting. Yeah. She's bringing the baby. Oh, it's going to be baby great. central. It's going to be great. Oh, that's so perfect. I can't wait. I just really yeah. like her. So good. Me too. And I know I'm going to like your baby. Oh, yeah. I already know that. Yeah. So. <laughs> He's great. Yeah. And this will be the first meeting of Brendan and Arden yeah. as well. Yeah, um, so first Arden of McIntosh, we'll see. we're hoping, yes, just like this is really <laughs> exciting. Someday somebody will write a novel about their love. Um, okay, well, let's turn to our listener questions here. Uh, the first one we're going to talk about, Sean, is a question from Hannah King. I think this like gets us started off uh, with a bang. She asks, in this story, does optimistic really mean avoidant. Oh yeah. Judge seems to never really come to terms with Becky's illness. And then she quotes from the book, quote, that was when he started, of course, being what he scowlingly called an optimist. He loved his wife, whatever she did that she couldn't help doing was all right. End quote. Uh, and I, I really like this question because I think it gets to the heart of the novel and we haven't really settled. We talked about who is the optimist. We got a mm. lot of really insightful listener comments on that. It was really, right. really enjoyed reading through those. And some of them made me think thoughts I hadn't thought before about the book. So um, I 
but I'm curious what you think about the word optimist in the title. And then what is the meaning of that? Does optimist really mean avoidant or does it have some kind of, you know, dare I say, optimistic meaning to it in the novel? <laughs> uh, I, maybe you can, maybe you can help me become more of an optimist about this novel. <laughs> because <Go on. laughs> I, I love the novel. I think it's brilliant. I don't think there's any sincerity in the term. Uh, I think that what's revealed, even in that passage that uh, that you just read, I think it's revealed that the when the judge becomes a quote-unquote optimist is really when his blindness begins uh, or manifests and and that his optimism looks like him not facing reality, not facing the truth. Uh, and I, as several listeners have commented in different places, that's, I was going to use the word detrimental, but it, it's awfully harmful to his wife in that he's not able to, he's not able to deal with the possibility of losing her. And so he's not able to help her die well uh, or be the kind of help to his daughter that he needs to be uh, leading up to and following the death of her mother. And so the optimism, the optimism is blindness, I think. And I don't see too many places where <laughs> in the novel that would contradict that unless I maybe I'm talking to myself into it uh, unless Laurel, who is the optimist daughter, is able to uh, come to uh, some sense of genuine optimism by the end. Uh, even even so, though, I think it's tempered with a lot of sadness. I don't think that this is. Uh, I, I don't. I think this is a novel that ends in a resolute way, but not in a terribly happy or hopeful way. Right. I think that's right. Uh, later on, just to add to what you just said and address the question in a different way, Jim later on quotes from uh, an article in The New Yorker uh, yes. from 1969 um, about this, about the novel. Um, and he quotes from, let's see, the author says Maxwell. Yeah. William William Maxwell, um, and he says, quote, I'm still partial to The Optimist's Daughter because by its ironic tone, it suggests a certain distance between the writer and the women in the story. Uh, and then he goes on. And I I've, I latched on to how Maxwell was pointing out the irony of the yeah. book, um, that that irony is both comic and tragic, right? right. Um, we, as the reader, we know more <laughs> about what's coming. We know more than the the characters in the story do. And one of the things that it seems that we know is that the judge wasn't an optimist. Right. He was a flawed man and avoidant. He's got his head buried in the sand. Uh, and it ends up, of course, the really wonderful objective correlative, everybody take a shot, um, <laughs> that that he becomes blind, right. right? His vision is impacted and he get, experiences death by blindness. Yeah. And, and has no, he exhibits no will to live. Mm. Uh, he has no optimism about his own fate. 
mm. right? Several times, Welty or the narrative voice says that he's just experiencing the focusing on the passage of time uh, as if he's simply <laughs> waiting for uh, whatever comes. And just as whatever his wife would do was fine and excusable, and whatever happens to him is going to be fine and excusable. And he really seems to to have uh, accepted early in this uh, in his ailment that it's, it's just death. He's just sitting there waiting to die. He mm. he pulls back from all points of human contact and human affection, and uh, just you know wastes away. Right. Well, and I think that speaks to another question that Nikki brought up now twice. I admire your persistence, Nikki. Thank you. Uh, she oh, asked, yes. why was Faye not charged for homicide <laughs> in the death of the judge? Yes, right? it's a fair she question. Brutally, it is. She brutally Somebody. mistreated him while well, he was supposed to be immobilized after eye surgery. She would have denied him surgery if given the opportunity. So although the 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 question is directly related to the plot, right? Mm-hmm. Why wasn't something included? I think it had to be this way uh, because in his blindness, the death, uh, the death of the judge comes through his blindness, right? right. Um, and his flawed attempt to heal it. Uh, and of course, Faye has to stand in between him and any potential healing because that's just the kind of person that she is. And that's the function she plays <laughs> in the function. novel. Yeah. She is the antagonist in the true sense of the word. Uh, and I think she, I think in terms of supporting these central contemplations of the story, these thematic elements, she can't be charged, right? It, because the point is that in his blindness, he doesn't see Faye coming and she mm-hmm. does him harm when he, when he is, immobilized by his willful blindness that then that that then incapacitates him and then she does him harm unto death and then gets away with it and then she repeats that cycle in every relationship in her life this is just mm-hmm. the one in which it's the most obvious so i think that that plot choice on welty's part plays into the more important thematic you know contemplations of the novel yeah yeah and and i think uh whatever you might say medically I think thematically, Faye is not the judge's killer, uh, but she is so, her behavior there is meant to show us that she is so self-oriented uh, that she doesn't really care for the well-being of the judge hmm. uh, beyond the point that it means her own comfort or security she doesn't actually care about his recovery. She just wants the circumstances to be different for herself. Uh, and, and that that's primarily what we're shown by her. Yeah. Her, her carelessness in, in, uh, you know, accosting him in the hospital. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's right. There's another couple of questions that I, about other characters that we haven't had too much of a chance to talk to, Arts, excuse me, to talk about, never going to talk to them, but right. we will talk about them, <laughs> which <laughs> in books, this is the only time in which that <laughs> is appropriate. <laughs> Nine times out of 10, talk directly to the person, not about them. <laughs> um, so Hannah asks about Miss Adele. Um, is Adele potentially our, our voice of reason and true assessment uh, later on? Another question about Adele. 
um, oh, Elizabeth. Elizabeth asks, can you please talk about Miss Adele? I find it significant that she insists Laurel keep that little boat, represents her parents' love, uh, and is the one not judging Faye and is the teacher of the children. She gives me hope. But maybe I'm being too optimistic. Nice play on the word optimistic there. Um, so that is, Hannah and Elizabeth are asking similar questions. There's another question here about whether or not um, uh, Adele is in love with the judge and whether we have some clues to that in the novel. Um, and then Rabia asks, the book ends with the image of the children waving and we have Faye's chilling prediction that she is the future. However, does the fact that Miss Adele is their teacher counterbalance the influence of Faye and her ilk on the next generation? Love that question. Yeah. So, Sean, talk a little bit about Miss Adele. Oh, boy. Uh, so she is, and there are a lot of there are a lot of women in the story. And so I, so I want to make sure I'm keeping them straight. This is Adele is Miss Cortland, the doctor's sister. Yes, exactly. Sister. The doctor's sister, okay. which Zena points yes. out here too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So she's the doctor's sister. They have been longtime neighbors. Uh, so the other the other uh, characters in the town, you know, are you know, live wherever they live. But the the Cortlands have have always lived uh, adjacent to the judge and his family. So they have a much deeper or more intimate relationship in that sense. And, uh, and so Dr. Cortland in the opening scenes of the novel uh, is intimately familiar with the Becky's gardening habits. Right? Uh, they, they know each other really well and in, in an intimate way. Uh, Adele is this spinster who has uh, observed I guess all of all of the marriages next door, both of the marriages next door, and uh, and yeah, as as um, I'm, I'm not keeping it straight anymore. But as one of those questions points out, uh, she seems to be on the one hand, if not sympathetic, at least uh, the one most reticent to be terribly judgmental or critical toward Faye, mm-hmm. uh, and yet she's also oh, this was yeah, it was Elizabeth. She's also uh, the one who uh, really wants Laurel to ha- hold on to that uh, that carved stone that is uh, you know, some kind of physical representation of the love between her parents. Uh, and so she seems like a very trusty friend. Uh, and yet there is that point during, I think it's during the Mockingbird conversation, uh, when one of the women, maybe it's Adele herself, uh, when they're commenting upon the judge's choice of Faye, that there were plenty of perfectly good women right here at home that he could have he could have ended up with. Uh, the suggestion being maybe it's someone in uh, you know in the room, uh, and so I it does I think there are moments where we get the suggestion that she has uh, some sort of uh, affection for the judge, which could then, and that she's a decent lady. Uh, She's, uh, which could then just go to further demonstrate the blindness of of the judge. Uh, And she is, it is interesting that she is the school teacher and that the final scene of the novel is her surrounded by children because so many of the women in the novel, 
are childless. She is childless because not for um, lack of interest or desire, perhaps. Uh, Laurel is childless because her husband <laughs> died. Uh, Faye seems uh, entirely uninterested in being a mother and even even the idea of being <laughs> a mother uh, and seems unsuited to it anyway. Uh, but out of all of them, and there's even one of the other bridesmaids, I think is also a, a at least one of them is a spinster, right? Uh, is it Major Bullock? See, his, his sister? sister? Miss, maybe so. Is that yeah. Miss Ted? Sorry, I can't keep I, all of them straight. I know I that there are listeners right. folding laundry and, <laughs> and driving in their cars, like yelling the answer. And thank you for yes, your, that's right. I wish I could hear you. <laughs> yeah, uh, God hears and mm-hmm. you will be yes, rewarded. and rewards. <laughs> uh, right, but so there are a lot of childless women in the novel. And uh, of all of them, it's it's Adele who is surrounded by um, a new generation of of life and of children at mm-hmm. the end. So I think there is something uh, that in itself is a kind of commendation of her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. What do you think about? I agree. I think that I mean, I'm I'm with Lisa. Uh, she says, am I completely misinterpreting that? I'm like, no, oh no. girl, that's what I think, too. Adele yeah. is in love with the judge. And yeah. And I think that that's an important aspect to the novel because then we get this sense of, ah, even more urgency and like urgent, like rejection of Faye's presence, right? right. If it wasn't for Faye, he might have married Adele. Yeah. And then Laurel would have a best friend for a stepmom, right? right? Like there would be this, this unity, this cohesion, this healing presence of Miss Adele uh, in the life of the judge who had suffered greatly at his wife's decline and death. And then Laurel, who has experienced so much loss. Yeah. Uh, and instead, because of Faye and everything that she represents, there is more division. Uh, there is more separation and isolation for these characters than there would have than than there's been than there was before. Whereas yeah. Adele could have brought more healing and goodness. Uh, and so we're left with that grief as well. I think that's really important. Also, Miss Adele adds so much wisdom. Uh, and and she sees Laurel. And and in a right. novel in which the question of seeing clearly becomes up over and over again. And we, um, again, there's this, there's the irony again, right? Like the tragic and the comic irony. Miss Adele's constantly laughing at things. She's winking. She's making eye contact with Laurel and smiling. She's the one who sees it. She sees the things that we as readers see that the other characters are missing, um, including the serious part, the tragic irony as well. She sees the judge even maybe more clearly than Laurel does. We sympathize with Laurel's blindness because we know it comes from grief and love, but we recognize it. Mm -hmm. We see that, that Laurel, there's things she's missing. There's ways that she's idealizing the past. Um, There's, there's way that ways that she's, she is blind to her parents' faults um, and, and intentionally trying to forget uh, about the grief of her own life and is marginalized and Adele sees all of that. And so we, the fact that she's in love with a judge, I think is a necessary part of the novel that, um, 
that that adds to the to like the the weight of Faye in the yeah. world. Yeah, and she's uh, she doesn't just see, but Adele is a a, a memory, right? She mm. she remembers accurately uh, the life that has been lived in this place, and and she remembers with affection uh, the judge's first wife, mm. uh, which is so contrary to Faye, <laughs> and so Faye because she hates the idea and the memory of Becky. Uh, can't allow really any part of that past to inform the present. Mm. Uh, whereas Adele loved this woman, uh, and you know, we weirdly, you know, these are always odd situations that are <laughs> hard to imagine, but or put yourself in. But it, her love for the judge's first wife would have made her a better second wife mm-hmm. uh, to him. And I think, I mean, Welty cares a lot about place and puts a lot of stock in uh, the way that you come to know people by living with them generationally. And uh, I think that's so, uh, so present in what Adele is and what the choice of the judge's choice of someone like Faye over Adele uh, mm. represents that it's, a, you know, this severing of that of link or chain of memory and history. And it's, uh, it is, it's really, really weighty and, and very sad. Hmm. Yeah. Um, Lisa asks a question about another character we haven't talked too much about either. Uh, she asked about Major Bullock. She says, I'm wondering about Major Bullock and his role as essentially the only man who plays a part in the story. Is he just a silly man or are his feelings of sympathy toward Faye more insightful than we give him credit for? I am leaning towards silly myself because nothing compels me to feel any sympathy for Faye. I love that question. Um, I am going to go pull broccoli out of my oven. (laughs) Because I am working at my dining room table. And so hold on one second. Logan, you drop like a sound effect in here. Yeah, broccoli sound. Or else just cut that entire (laughs) entire (laughs) comment I just made. It's maybe stricken from the record. All right. BRB, as the kids say. Do they say that? I don't know. Uh, Anyway, I will be right back. I'll help them. Okay. Man, Logan, I hope you just leave all of this in here. All the broccoli talk and everything. All right, I'm back. Well done. Thanks. All right, Major Bullock. Major Bullock. What's he for? What is Major Bullock for? <laughs> uh, Major Bullock. I, you, you need to go first on this one because uh, I talked first about the the last oh, female yeah. character. So now you I get know. to talk first about it. Is tricky with this. two people in a Q and A, yeah. Because the dynamic always it always ends up that you have to answer every question first. Uh-huh. All right. So thanks. Um, I think that uh, Faye is so uh, obviously repulsive <laughs> and completely unlikable, and I think that's the way it's supposed to be. I know that we in our one of our first conversations. Uh, we talked about whether or not she could possibly be as villainous as she is painting to be. Was was Welty going to kind of circle back and give us a, right. uh, you know, like some kind of really 
compelling anti-hero narrative that we were going to all like buy into fame be like we were wrong about her right we're used to that that's a really common uh plot device now in fact it's getting a little bit threadbare wouldn't you agree in the public (laughs) square um but this is not one of those novels um she is a she is the villain of the story uh uh even though we're giving given some really well-placed uh um, psychological, like a believable psychological reasons that give us, you know, the reason for Faye. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and some of those are heart wrenching, but she still is a soulless person. Um, and we are meant to dislike her. We are reading the story right. Uh, Major Bullock, though, is taken in by her. He, thinks that she's like this fragile little woman that he wants to care for. It arouses <laughs> his instincts, his protective instincts. Um, he is drunk most of the time right. that we see yeah, him I was gonna add that. in the pages <laughs> of the story. But we get kind of this, we through Major Bullock, because the judge is gone and we don't we don't see her appeal to the judge other than secondhand. Um we get, but we do see how she is appealing to Major Bullock. Um, so we get to see her appeal to a masculine character instead of all of these feminine characters who just want to like scratch her eyes out because they <laughs> see what he doesn't see. So I think that's at least part of it. His name is fascinating to me. Um, and I just imagine Walty just like chuckling, like, <laughs> I'm just going to do it. I'm going to name him Bullock, the bull in the China shop, the, you know, the big oaf. um, So I I think that he serves a plot device and gives us a little bit of a foil and a counterpoint to the, to the women so that we're not just constantly asking as many of us still are, right? What in the world did he see in Faye? What in the world (laughs) did the judge see in Faye? Through Major Bullock, we can see what the judge sees in Faye. Yeah, right. And it is, it's, important that he is also a ridiculous man mm-hmm. uh, he's not he's not a very sensible man <laughs> he does he's not a man with a lot of uh temperance or self-control and uh yeah so when we when we see through his eyes something sympathetic in Faye, i think we're meant to to question it uh although i think it's also there's something to be said for his detachment from the situation uh Faye isn't a a threat to something touching him intimately the way it is for many of the women uh and so i think that it's also possible that he does see uh to a degree rightly that Faye is someone helpless. Uh, because in reality, she is. Uh, she's she's helpless. Uh, Laurel comes to the same conclusion. Uh, she's helpless in the ultimate sense that she can't mm. love things or people. <laughs> uh, and perhaps Major Bullock can perceive that in, in the vaguest way and doesn't really understand what that means or what that requires and so he helps in his own you know wondering way because he does he does the way he helps her is he finds her family mm. and so there is something 
innocent about <laughs> about that, right? Guileless about that. Uh, it's again, it's dumb, and it's because he's not very perceptive <laughs> when he when he talks to her family, uh, or can't just guess what kind of people her family are going to be. Uh, mm-hmm. But he really does seem like he's trying to help. Uh, but yeah, that he is in part taken in by taken in by Faye, nonetheless, and, mm-hmm. and does not see the the harm that her presence is doing or uh, you know, that her presence represents. Right. I think that's right. And in the in in the fact that he is ridiculous, to your point, it highlights even more the decline of the judge's faculties mm-hmm. for being somebody who is well respected and yet was also taken in by Faye yeah. in the same way that this ridiculous man is right <laughs> yeah um so yeah he I mean he serves as a foil uh in the story and he's pitiable in his own way as well as I think a bit of like a stock character in southern literature right yeah the, um and I think that we can't lose sight of the fact that this is such a Southern novel populated by the types of people that you would find uh, in Southern novels and in Southern culture. Um, And, but Welty escapes the, uh, uh, the making them merely stock characters. She humanizes them. She rounds them enough so that they have some pathos to them. Uh, and, and and true human identities, even even Major Bullock with the small amount of time that he uh, airtime or screen time or stage <laughs> time, so to speak, that he gets. We get a very complete picture of him as representative of a type and mm-hmm. also as a man in himself. Yeah. Yeah. There's even the uh, the handyman. Mm, that's uh, right. Yeah. <laughs> comes around as another kind of uh, stock, stock character. character. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, many of them are, but they, they're stock characters and yet they're fully themselves. And, you know, who else does that? Well, it's Agatha Christie with uh, village, yeah. you know, like with, yeah. with English life. That's right. Um, there's so many, her books are just populated by stock characters. You know, all of them have this living, breathing identity. Um, so they serve as insights into English culture, or in this case, Southern culture, as well as being, you know, real breathing characters. It's right. a, it's a hard thing to do, like mm-hmm. not just, to, you know, reduce them to stereotypes, but in the hands of a skilled writer. Yeah. And, and it's, it also reveals something fascinating about stereotypes, right? That there mm-hmm. is, you can learn the life of a place in such a way that you come to understand the, the types of people that tend to be in that place and that there are types uh, among actual human beings. Uh, Mm -hmm. There aren't, uh, there aren't an infinite number of types. There aren't an, uh, there isn't an infinite number of ways for us to be. Uh, There are, there are many, but they're not, they're not infinite because humanity is not infinite. Man is not an infinite being. Uh, That's and, right. and it does seem like there's, uh, you know, we, we're wary of stereotyping, uh, but it does seem like a good author, a good author is good at seeing. And one of the things that they, they tend to see well, or, or what makes you a good author is if you can see clearly, uh, the types that life tends to produce in, in, in a right. place. I know. And, you know, to your point that, and then also, this is how people from the outside, this is how cultures get captured or um, exp- 
explored, like memorialized is the best word. This yeah. is how cultures get memorialized through fiction, uh, through literature that that gets handed down, you know, mid-century English life in Agatha Christie. Like I I I see it never lived at that time or place. Um, but I I have I've been invited in when yeah. you have these stock characters, these stereotypical um or or common like common shared cultural experiences um, and the kinds of people that exist within a specific culture in a specific place in a specific time. Like there's something truly beautiful and honoring about that. It's not reduction. It's a way of remembering and honoring a culture. The fact that it has its own type of people in its own place. That's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, You know, I was just reminded of, of, um, this conversation I listened to with Eudora Welty. There was mm. some great, uh, mostly on the Facebook page, which, uh, you know, is not my most favorite, but uh, it's fine. Uh, it's a it's a consolation for... Do you mean Facebook? Facebook is not my favorite? most favorite. Yeah. I wish yeah. that these all were right. all on the Substack page, but uh, uh, there have been posted over the last few weeks some great uh, links to Eudora Welty content. Um, several of them probably, I think, have come from Mary Jo Tate, uh, uh, not surprisingly. Um, great essays on on Welty. And, uh, but there's a lot of footage. Of, there's a lot of video footage of Welty who lived uh, at least into the 70s, maybe into the 80s. But there's this great conversation uh, on Firing Line. Do you know the show? William F. Buckley's television no. program. Uh, there is... There is some gold in the the firing mm. line archives, but this one in particular, William F. Buckley is interviewing Eudora Welty and Walker Percy on the subject oh. of the Southern imagination. Uh wow! And it's they talk they touch on this that sounds uh, amazing quite heavily, and it's a it's a fantastic uh, exchange. So you should all go Google go that. Find that. Yeah, William F. Buckley, Eudora Welty, Walker Percy. It'll it'll come up for yeah. sure. That's a great conversation. The- I, I'm going to throw my hat in the ring on the Facebook for V Substack because <laughs> I miss the Facebook page. Yeah, I don't love Facebook, but I miss the Facebook page because people could post pictures and didn't have to like, it seemed more like of a shared community space. Right. Um. So I, I know I, I am willing, you know, me, I'm a traditionalist. So I mean, so are you. I'm not saying you're not. Um, but see, in our world, this is not an insult. So this is a compliment. I have to, I'm like, it's okay. You are too, Sean. You're a traditionalist. Don't worry. You're a Philistine. I didn't mean so, it. So, yeah. So, anyway, I, I, I get the, you know, changing times and all that. So, but there's something to be said for both. That's true. It is the... Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's the that's the part that makes it hard to uh, mm-hmm. to say don't go to the <laughs> Facebook close reads page because there's a lot of good stuff that's happening. There. I know, I know. Uh, well, and it's just and it's the OG, right? Like it's, it's the, the OG. neighborhood. Yeah, yeah, it's the neighborhood. That's right. So well, yeah. put. that's yeah. our that's our original close reads yeah. front porch. Mm-hmm. And uh, yes, yeah. but we are all still part of the membership, and it's. Thriving and flourishing. So, okay. Another um, secondary character we haven't talked too much about is Laurel's mother. 
Um, ah. And just a passing comment at how rich and this book is for being so short. It's just, there's endless things to talk about. Yeah. So much yeah. we didn't cover um, or just didn't have time to, to delve into. Zena has a great comment. I'm going to read it. It's an entire, in its entirety, it's a bit lengthy, but it's worth it. There's a lot of good stuff in here. Um, Zena says, Faye had once at least called Becky, quote, my rival. Laurel thought, but the rivalry doesn't lie where Faye thinks. It's not between the living and the dead, between the old wife and the new. It's between too much love and too little. There is no rivalry as bitter. Laurel had seen its work. End quote. Then she says, does that mean that Becky was the one who loved the judge too much and Faye had loved him too little? Or does it mean something greater? Does it mean that Becky knew how to truly love not just her husband, but the whole of life? She loved her father, mother, brothers. And then she says, contrast with Faye's family. Becky loved baking bread. It seems she loved Phil. She loved gardens. Her love language seems to be acts of service, while Faye isn't really seen as serving anyone other than herself. And yet, Becky does not die in peace. I feel like she died in defeat. Did the judge have too little love? How does optimism keep one from truly loving someone? Really, really... Great question yeah. um, and insightful comments as well. Um, Sean, any any thoughts on this, the rivalry? Yeah, I I think this, at least in my mind, connects to a lot of conversations we've had recently. Mm-hmm. Uh, I read that line to be more talking about the judge than the two women. Too much love and too little love. Uh, Becky is definitely capable of great love and fate is capable of maybe none at all except for herself and maybe not even that consistently but i read that line to be talking about the judge having loved becky too much and fay too little and that in fay fay's relationship to everyone after the judge's death is sort of <laughs> a textbook for someone who has not herself been loved enough and she's bitter uh because she feels well she's bitter about the memory of becky because i think she whatever she said i think she can intuit that contrast uh that all the people in the town loved becky more than they love faye that the judge that the judge is drawn to faye and this gets at one of the other questions uh that someone asked what (laughs) What's the judge see in Faye anyway? Uh, and that whatever reason the judge is drawn to Faye, it was not love, strictly speaking. And uh, and that, that that takes a toll on a person knowing or, or sensing, even if they can't articulate it to themselves, that they are uh, not loved, especially by their husband. Uh, whereas his, his excessive love for Becky is really... We, we talked about this uh, in the reading of Diary of a Country Priest and uh, brought up C.S. Lewis and the Great Divorce. Uh, and I think it his love for Becky crossed over the line of ordered love into a, a disordered love that kept him from, well, again, kept him from seeing her rightly and uh, being capable of 
letting her go uh, or or helping her approach her own death because he could not he couldn't countenance the the idea uh, of losing his wife and mm-hmm. so he loved her he loved her so much that he became incapable of loving her properly <laughs> right yeah i like that i also read that comment about the rivalry um too much love and too little love as being directly connected to the judge's denial and Becky's painful death um, when she really loses herself and that his love then that was just unable, unwilling slash unable to embrace that, embrace his wife's decline for what it is, was the too much love, right? Mm -hmm. And then, but even saying that feels wrong to me because I don't, I still think that's lack of love. Mm -hmm. Right. I, I, I don't, I'm not trying to be pedantic when I say don't think there is such a thing as too much love. I don't think there's an excess of love. Yeah. There's, there's deficiency in different directions, right? Right. And that's what I, that's what I, that's what I was trying to get at too. Yeah. That's really how I understand what I understand the line to mean Hmm. uh, that it is love swung to the other extreme or love fallen into the other ditch uh, rather than quantitatively there being too much genuine, right, uh, good, beautiful love. Because, yeah, I think that would be an impossibility. Right. This this question also connects with uh, a question from Patricia when she says, how should we interpret Becky's bitterness to the judge at the end of her life? Yeah. And what? And she then asks, finally, what does Laurel mean when she tells Faye that Becky predicted her? Yeah. Definitely Becky's bitterness. Uh toward the judge, toward her husband at the end of her life is, I think, the most complicating aspect of the novel. Mm-hmm. Like it is what makes the novel complicated and keeps it from being kind of a very straightforward but profound uh, contemplation of grief and love and family ties and bonds and all of that. Um, there was the good wife and the bad wife, right? Mm-hmm. Like there was, you know, Becky was the good wife, Faye's the bad wife, and now Laurel's left to clean up the mess and the judge got deceived along the way. That's simple. Right. That's that's pretty tidy. Um, but Becky's loss of herself, her decline, her bitterness at the end is what makes this novel I think even more beautiful and, and profound and complicated. And it made me think of um we've you and I both put Ethics of Beauty on the on oh, our yeah. top five book list from yeah. from last year. Um and I I've been thinking about this aspect of Ethics of Beauty a lot. I hope many of our listeners have read it or are reading it right now. Um and feel free to add your comments on this because it's a complicated question. Um but in in the book, Dr. Timothy Petitza said that the way that you can distinguish beauty from prettiness, like 
real beauty from just being attractive or appealing or pretty is that beauty always carries a hidden cross. Yes. Um, that there's, there's always a death, a loss of self that is part of love. There's always a wound in love. Yeah. Um, and, and this speaks, I think I was having this conversation the other day with, and you might want to cover your very little one's ears when I'm about to say, but it is relevant <laughs> that in um, medieval times, uh, there was a euphemism that was body, but profound um, in speaking of the consummation of love, the physical consummation of love. They, they, they said that they were dying, right? right. That's yeah. why, um, that's why Benedict says to Beatrice, I die in your lap, right? Um, that there is this instinctive, because the medievals did everything right. Like they get that <laughs> there's this loss of self that gives you back yourself yeah. in a real love, that there's always a crucifixion of the self in beholding beauty and in being and, and being changed by it. And so a novel always, to be truly beautiful, a novel always has to have a hidden cross. And I think it's Becky in this novel. Yeah. Like she is the cross of this novel. Like it's it's a weight kind of too hard for any of them to bear that breaks them because her love was so transforming to them and so formative to them. And then when she loses herself at the end, there's no recovering from that for them. Right. Like you can't come back from that even if it's not her fault. And that's not something I can make any sense of. <laughs> I can't because that happens all the time. That's right. With loved ones and like the loss of the mind that's, that is physical, that, that isn't the fault of the dying person. And yet it has a cost to it. And what are we to do with that? And the fact that this novel takes this on is very beautiful, but very hard. Right. Yeah. And that in his blindness, that the judge is uh, well, it's it's an open question, maybe, but it's suggested that the judge is even a contributor to that loss in some way. Right? He just as uh, the theme of characters who bear or preserve a memory uh, runs throughout the novel, and when Becky needs someone to. Uh, to hold, uh, to attenuate who she is, uh, her husband sort of falters by clinging instead to an idea of her that is not, uh, doesn't comport with reality. And so she's wanting, <laughs> as she's losing herself, uh, she's desperate for someone to uh, to retain her self, uh, some idea or vision of her, uh, and uh, the only the person closest to her is sort of willfully not seeing her as she is anymore, uh, and that is it's very very tragic. It is. Um, I, I and I don't again I don't. No, like I don't have any answers for that. And I think that that's how fiction functions best is like those, those quandaries, those mysteries of life that just are, and we all recognize, but we yeah. can't explain. We can't, you know, we might be able to come up with some kind of propositional framework that 
you know, that, that, yeah. that tidies it up, but we, it's not, it's existential. Right. We want a, we would very much like a conclusion that makes some sense of it. And, uh, uh, yeah, is affirming in some, in some way, but, uh, yeah, so, so often, uh, great literature can just be, you know, like Job's friends sitting in the dirt with him. That's right. Uh, and, uh, it's when they start talking that they blow. <laughs> that's right. Yep. That's right. All right. So we're done talking about that. We'll just acknowledge it as one of, as a human mystery that Welty gives us to, to just gaze at and that's say right. it is. It is that thing. Yeah. That's the hard thing. Um, okay. Let's talk about uh, then Laurel's future. There are a couple of really good questions about this. Hannah asks, um, do you think Welty gives any clues as to how Laurel's life will change, if at all, when she returns to Chicago as a, quote, free bird? <laughs> it is almost as if she had just reached adulthood after processing the tragedy of loss in father, mother, and husband. She seems so bleakly alone. Great phrase, by the way. Do you think Welty gives us hope for new relationships in her life? A similar question comes from Patricia. She says, we don't know anything about Laurel except her relationships with her parents and husband, nothing about her life in Chicago, except she's a fabric designer. We don't know if she has friends, whether she dates and thinks about marrying again, why she continued to live in Chicago after her husband's death. Why? We don't really know what she's returning to at the end of the book. So are we given, is there a reason for that? Is there a reason why, why we don't have a lot of insight into Laurel's life beyond um, her hometown, and do we have any any clues about the future for her? Heidi, I want you to answer this question first. <laughs> <laughs> I was I was waiting for that. I was. Um, well put. Becky predicted. You Faye, you predict. I predicted that. Um, yeah. I think yeah. that there is. I think that Welty does not give us any clues into Laurel's life, so that we can mourn what she's losing and and. Yeah in her place, in her hometown. I think that what that does is it gives us a, as, as this is the one part of the novel in which we do not know what the characters know or as much as the characters know. We are given only this, this short amount of time with this depth of insight into this place uh, and these relationships in Laurel's life. She is the main character. It's in the title. This is about the optimist daughter. Um, so we know that we're going to be learning about her as a daughter and that that's the main relationship that's going to be explored in this novel. Um, and, and I think that's even true in her conflict with Faye. It is, it is, this is about her relationship with her father and her, her experience of, of being able to make connections between that part of her life and all the other parts of her life. But um, I think a couple of things. One, with the fact that she lives in the North, um, and this is a Southern novel, um, we have a, that that creates an even greater sense of displacement for her. And I think we need to be left with that lingering sense of displacement that that she isn't in a sense where she belongs, even in returning to her home where she's lived for a for a long time, maybe even longer, about you know, half her life or even more. Yeah. 
Um, and that's, I think that that's important that that doesn't fully sit well with us, that we don't have anything. The, the best that we can hope for is that she's at peace with the past and able to fully be in the present, but we don't have any specific desires for her in the future because that's a different life. Okay. And, and I think we're kind of, Welty's kind of forcing us to let that let those two parts of her life be divided and for us to care more about the old than the new as readers. Yeah. Uh, I think that's, I think that's well put that she doesn't give us a lot to, to look forward to so that we're oriented backward. Uh, mm. we're, we're focused on what Laurel is losing or has lost in this morning. Uh, yeah, and I, <clears throat> I don't, <laughs> I don't think there's cause for a lot of hope uh, when when trying to imagine Laurel's life going forward. It doesn't seem like a very happy one, <laughs> mm. uh, though. We don't have any indication that she has been living a very happy life uh, up till now, and so uh, maybe there's not. There's not much difference. Uh, she has, uh, she is leaving behind. Yeah, as you say, she's leaving behind an entire life. Uh, but she's leaving it behind in a settled kind of way. Right? She seems to have come to to a kind of peace about. Uh, the loss of her mother, the loss of her husband. And so perhaps uh, that clears the way. Uh, that's not an insensitive way to think about it or, or opens the way for her to, to move on mm. uh, that she has sort of been living. It seems like Laurel's life before the beginning of the novel is very much like what the judge was doing in his hospital bed. Right? She is just sort of watching time pass as she does this work, which she could take or leave, right? She leaves in the middle of a, of a project and, and seems to have no great attachment to it at all. Yeah. You know, whatever. I'll find some more work later. Uh, and so perhaps she, uh, she too has sort of been uh, apathetic uh, in, in her approach to life and, and perhaps uh, can live, uh, you know, better when she, <laughs> when she returns. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know. Right. More connected maybe to memory, more um, open to the full human experience instead of kind of in like a twilight kind of shadowy zone. Yeah. Of or half uh, tones. <laughs> yeah. And, and connected to memory in a, in a, rather than haunted by it. Mm, right. Because yeah. uh, the, the the thoughts she allows herself to think and the emotions she allows herself to feel uh in the you know nearing the close of the novel right when she finally she finally just says aloud i wanted the life that my husband and i have lost i wanted that and it's gone and i'm sad about that uh, it mm -hmm. seems like a novel development uh, something that she has not been able to uh look straight in the eye before that moment uh, and 
when you're haunted by memory, you live uh, you live so cautiously because you don't want to startle memory and stir mm. up memory uh, and have to deal with <laughs> with the pain of remembering things. Uh, but if she can if she can live uh, in a different oriented to memory in a different way, uh, then yeah, perhaps she can uh, she'll be free to live. Uh, a little more healthily. Right. Without the breadboard, though. I really wish you would have taken the breadboard. Man, why didn't you take the breadboard? Faye's going to jack up that breadboard. I know. Um, well, for our final question, I want to do this one by Andy. I just really like this question. And it gives us and a Dave. chance to use your favorite word, bloviate. Um, yes, so get ready. We might be doing a little bit of bloviating here. Andy, I really like this question. Me too. Um, she said, he asks, does learning that plot elements and characters bear degrees of resemblance to a novelist's life in any way diminish aspects of that novel for readers or the creative accomplishments of that novel? Um, and he, he goes on to describe how the Ot optimist daughter reflects certain biographical um, experiences that Welty had. And, you know, the question is a good one. Does it matter uh, to the quality of the novel if it is uh, taken from the author's life and to what extent? If it does, then to what extent, you know, and then by extension, and I think embedded within the question uh, is, is is the question, do we need to know that stuff in order to mm -hmm. read a novel? Does it make the experience more potent to read it if we know about how much ought an author's life to impact our reading of the novel? How much do we need to know? Um, but I really like the question from his perspective. Does it diminish the, the greatness of the novel? Great question. Yeah. And I am not going to answer this one first, Sean. Well, I'm going to answer this question with a question. And that question is... <laughs> What what do you think it is in Andy's life that made him <laughs> ask this question? Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I probably can't interpret. I probably can't answer this question until I know more about Andy. Do you feel like Andy's got people in his life who are criticizing or reading into his life based on things that they know about Andy? And uh, does Andy I, have anything to hide? Is what you're asking? Yeah, does he, does he have anything to hide? And, and does do we need to know those things about him to understand this question? I guess we're certainly to answer it in yeah. a way that that Andy can understand, right? <laughs> sure, you don't. Yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, there are universal types, though. <laughs> we talked about this a minute ago. Uh, okay, so let's take a stab at it. Yeah. I, I think yes and no, and all of the above, and maybe sometimes. <laughs> all right so andy this is give the reason we like this question so much is because readers differ not only on the academic not only on the academic side which yeah. certainly that's the truth right there sure, have been sure, sure. debates about this forever right. um but also on the personal side what how much do we like to know yeah um and how much how much does it impact our reading experience this is a very debatable issue which is always yeah. really fun so there, go on sean there are there are uh, like crystallized schools of criticism that come down very hard on one side of this question or the other. Uh, I, I think I lean towards, uh, to answer part of the question out of order, uh, I lean towards discouraging what, what we call biographical criticism. 
which is partly described here uh, by Andy, that this idea that to really get the most out of a work of fiction, you have got to uh, sort of data mine the biographical experiences of the author and find the points of correlation in the work of fiction then to to really kind of peel back the layers and get to the heart of what they're trying to say uh, by figuring out how it does or doesn't uh, comport with their own personal experiences. Uh, because a great work can stand on its own, and uh, and also because uh, good writers tend to, this isn't universally true, and this isn't universally good advice, but good writers tend to write what they know, uh, and so their own experience is going to impact uh, their fiction in some way. But I think that uh, it's not a good idea to have this as a universal philosophy, because I think there are some works that are more uh, suited to biographical criticism than others. Uh, <clears throat> more on that in a second, I guess, because the 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 really great question is, does that diminish the creative accomplishment of the novel? Uh, and I think, I think my answer would be yes. If you had to know about the life of the author to appreciate what the novel was doing, I think that would be a weakness in the novel because that means that that author has not managed to create something that could stand on its own. Uh, now it can, that's not the same as saying uh, a great novel can't be informed by the author's life. But if you have to know something that isn't in the novel to understand the novel, uh, that seems like a weakness. Like if you're, if you're watching, if your friend wants you to watch some uh, hoity-toity French art house movie, and they're like, well, I'm just going to warn you, you're not going to get it because you haven't seen Francois Chauhan's 28 other movies, and you have to know his whole oeuvre to understand what's going on in this film, like that's, no, don't watch that movie. <laughs> that's a red flag. Uh, but I think there are, there are books that, that beg to be read in that way. Uh, the one that I always think of first is Frankenstein. I think Frankenstein is a novel that uh, it's really hard once you know about the life of Mary Shelley to not, uh, to not read the book in light of that. Uh, just the way that she herself is sort of uh, uh, mistreated by her uh, egomaniacal <laughs> husband. Uh, and, uh, and there are, there are others uh, that come to mind too, but that's the, the, the textbook example, I would say of, of a book that, that really justifies biographical criticism. Uh, mm. So I think it's a, it's a complicated question and it's a, uh, the kind where you want to have wisdom as your rule rather than a rule as your, as, right. as your rule. I tend to think of biographical details from the author as being like fun facts. Yeah. Like fun facts. Dostoevsky had epilepsy. A lot of his characters <laughs> do, right? Like yeah. fun facts. Fun fact. Your but, door wealthy's dad yes. died. Right. Like, um, both of those things aren't fun, but you know what I'm saying? <laughs> Neither <laughs> of those add, things. Is right. Fun. Um, but I, I'm Jim comments here under, under Andy's question 
he says he's personally with the new critics who maintain mm-hmm. that a work must stand on its own and be internally coherent. I totally agree with that. Um, I'm probably the most new critic out of the three of us for sure. <laughs> like I definitely think that a novel, it belongs once, once the novel leaves the author's hand, it belongs to us. Mm-hmm. And so, um, that I think is, and and that 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 the author does not get to dictate the uh, interpretations of his or her work. The work has to stand on its own, and if it endures, it endures. Right. But we can't have you know Shakespeare coming back from the dead, you know, five hundred years later, and being like, "You're supposed to not like Richard the Second, right?" <laughs> like, if I like him, I like him. He's mine now. Shakespeare gave him to the world, and now he is mine. Um, and and the whole worlds and that creates a conversation that's not dictated by the creator um of the art um but i'm also glad that people disagree with me on that because i think i'm probably a bit too hard line on it mm. and so it's it's i think that um that it's good to keep that as a conversation my fun fact my favorite auto my favorite biographical criticism is the romantics because mm. Um, knowing that Percy Shelley was such a, like, was such a terrible person, like a morally terrible person (laughs) makes his poems better because his poems are so idealistically loftily reaching for the ideal. And yet he lived such a morally degraded life and trying to make sense of that is interesting. And that I think is a, a um, an appropriate use of biographical criticism, for, but it's always oriented towards the work. The risk of of biographical criticism is that it becomes a study of the author, not mm. of the book. Yeah, and it's like a way to psychoanalyze the author. Sure, we can read this um, and, fiction and it'll tell us X or Y about what yes. the author was really thinking. Exactly. Yeah. Like The Optimist's Daughter, for example, is a great example of this. It is not a fictionalized grief memoir. Yeah. It is a novel. And the fact that she put some of her own grief and human experiences into it makes, I think it does make it better to Andy's question because it makes it more human. But it is Laurel's story, not Eudora Welty's story. And and if it was just, if Laurel just existed to explain Eudora Welty, then it's not a good book. Right. Um, so, so yeah, that I'm, but I'm not a fan of biographical criticism. I don't even, I try not to even read like, well, this is probably just because I hopefully kind of, uh, okay reader i don't even <laughs> like to like read the wikipedia pages like oh, i don't yeah. if, a, if a novel's like brand new to me and i don't know anything about the author just i it. just enter it cold turkey and just yeah. read it and then if things come up later it's like oh that's kind of interesting you know like so yeah but let the book stand on its own that is my advice but again i am not the only person in the world with an opinion on this there are many myriad. there are many <laughs> <laughs> It seems like a it seems like a, the healthier direction to approach from though. Uh you certainly run less risk of failing to to understand a novel on its own terms or missing missing what a novel is really trying to do if you approach it first yeah you know, on its own terms. And um uh and it's not just biographical criticism that makes that error, right? There are all kinds mm-hmm. of uh, very yeah. limiting criticisms, you know, uh, 
Marxist criticism or feminist criticism or, uh, I mean, I, you know, even, uh, even Christian symbolic readings of literature. I totally agree. Yeah. Yes, that the the sword cuts both both ways. This is right. Yep. <laughs> to the dividing. Yeah, of I just sent a paper. I just that's right. I just sent a paper back to a student today saying, really interesting idea, but you cannot if you're you cannot assume you you need basically like you need to take the Bible out of your paper. <laughs> <laughs> you may cite it as an academic source, but this is not a devotional paper. So that's yeah, yeah, the Bible. If the Bible's in your paper, make it a theology paper. (laughs) That's right. Yes. Yes. It has to be. There are different purposes for each different thing. So, um, and this is how rumors get started. So I'm about to get (laughs) a whole lot of comments on how I don't believe the Bible, which I do. I do. But it is. Yeah, it's right. But Uh, if you've read as many student papers as we have read. Yes. Yes. Yeah, that's right. And Um, if you want to, if you want to write me a paper uh, you know, laying the book of Acts over the Odyssey or something. I'm, I'm all for that. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, on that note, that's all that we have. Any final thoughts about the optimist daughter? I just want to, I just want to say again, how great this novel is. Yeah. And and going into it, knowing very little <laughs> about the novel and what to expect from it, uh, I was I was blown away. Uh, really delighted to have to have read this, uh, to have read it for the first time in this context, uh, and to have read it. Period. That was really enjoyable, and uh, it just makes me want to read even more of, of Welty's uh, writing. Yeah, I totally agree. This was very. Like, and such rich conversation. And again, I even feel like we have barely scratched the surface. There's so much, yeah. Yeah. And it's so unassuming. Mm -hmm. Uh, It really is layered so well. It doesn't feel like a crowded novel. And I think I even commented on our first episode, I got halfway through and was still wondering, when are things going to happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, When when is the rest of the, the substance going to arrive? Uh, but yeah. by the end, she's done a, such a good job of giving weight even to the things that have come before. Uh, yeah, it's remarkable. Right. Well, and it stains meaning backward, right? Once mm-hmm. you get to the end, it sheds so much light. It's it's a novel, I think, that will reward rereading and contemplating. Yes. And, yeah. um, you know, again, special thanks to Mary Jo Tate. Oh, yeah. Uh, and who loves Eudora Welty and has been advocating for us to read on the show um, her work. And you were right. So yep. <laughs> you were right. Thank you, Mary Jo. Uh, all right. Well, next week we will be back. What are we reading next, Sean? Oh, we're Scarlet Letter. That's right. Yep. There, yep. Yes. So yep. that will be me and David and a special guest, Karen Swallow Pryor. Uh, and she comes and talks to us just 
Um, so far it's been every year for the last couple of years. Um, and this time we'll be reading, hopefully those of you who don't have your own copy of the Scarlet Letter that you love and is underlined and all that, pick up a copy of Karen Swallow Pryor's version of it. it has wonderful discussion questions. It's beautifully bound. Um, nice definitely annotations. worth the investment. Yep. Wonderful annotation. She's an incredible scholar. So I cannot wait to talk to her about that. Um, and Sean, you are going to be taking a little break. You're going to get. Yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. in time to the grade final papers. And uh, that's, that's awesome. right. Yep. That, yep. All right. Well, we'll see you on the other side of the Scarlet Letter. 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 We'll see you on the <laughs> other side of the Scarlet Letter. That's right. And in our uh, ongoing and, conversation about the space trilogy. Yes. Over on yes. The, uh, the sister show. That's right. Yep. Over on Substack, Sean and I are going to be recording in just a couple of days our next installment of Paralandra. The good bits. Oh, man. Just, yeah. Talk about not scratching the surface of a novel. I know. We're going to have to do that again <laughs> sometime. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, head on over to Substack if you are not a subscriber over there. Um, we would love to have you in on the conversation. Um, join in. This is for subscribers only. Uh, and there's a lot of rich conversation going on over there. So, and on that note, for David Kern in Absentia uh, and for Sean Johnson, I'm Heidi White. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Happy reading. Happy reading.